This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Nick Asaski, card number 364, first baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. Okay. Nick Asaski, and why are we talking about Nick today? Nick Asaski was a pretty good player, and he had a big season for the Red Sox in 1989, and then disappeared from Major League Baseball after signing a big contract with his hometown team. I thought Nick had an interesting story, and a story unlike many that we've seen on this podcast. He has a Sabre bio by Bill Nowlin, author of 700 Sabre Bios, We have used his great work in our Tom Bernanski and Sammy Stewart episodes. So thank you, Bill Nowlin, for your work on the Sabre bio site. Sounds great. Let's go to the front of the card of 364. And we have Nick Asaski here. This is a spring training look. You can see the bright sun shining down as, you know, Nick is preparing to uh, receive a throw at first base. You can also see the outfield wall with the advertisements on it. So you know this is a minor league or spring training park. Lots of sun, also lots of shadows on Nick. So it's kind of hard to see his face a little bit. This uniform looks really good, though. I do like the solid red top and red stirrups. He's got some gloves in his back pocket, his first baseman glove. He's a big guy, 6'3", 200 pounds. A pretty good action shot despite all of those shadows. Yeah, I think so. Now let's go to the back of 364, and we have Nick Asaski, 6'3", 200, as you just mentioned, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Reds in the first round of June 1978, born February 24th, 1960, in Hialeah, Florida, with a home in Marietta, Georgia. Born in Hialeah, but his family lived in Carroll City, not Coral City, as I typed mistakenly over and over and over again in, my, in preparing my notes here. <laughs> His parents were Nick and Florian Asaski. Nick worked for an airline as a mechanic. And this, this town that they lived in, Carroll City, it was actually just a neighborhood in Miami Gardens. They wanted to name the neighborhood Coral City, but the town of Coral Gables threatened a lawsuit. And so the developer just switched the O and the A Right. I, it doesn't seem like a thing that you can sue about. It's the name of a of a neighborhood. More to the point, it's just the word. It's the word for, you know, like a fossilized shell or whatever. The, you know, it's a, like, that you find off the coast of Florida all over there. So I, I don't know. Just imagine, David, what would happen if suburbs of Chicago could ban other f- suburbs from using the words Glen, Forest, Oak, Brook. It'd be total chaos. Or if they were banned from using uh, mispronounced French words. Yeah, I don't... You know, you're, you're trying to mislead me into moving to Forest Park rather than Oak Forest. Totally different things, guys. Carroll City is not Coral City. It isn't even actually a city, just a neighborhood. So maybe that is misleading. Nick went to Miami Carroll City High School. Alums of Miami Carroll City High School include rappers Rick Ross, Flo Rida, Denzel Curry, football player Santana Moss, and also 1988 Tops dudes Randy Bush and Danny Tartable. And I always have to point out when our friends at Baseball Reference have 
something that is misleading. They say that Jose Canseco went there, but he went to Coral Park High School. I understand the confusion. Coral Park probably also has a lawsuit pending against Carroll City. So I'll send in my correction to the baseball reference folks, but uh, Jose Canseco did not go to Carroll City High School. In the 1970s, Carroll City was considered a good school academically and athletically. In the years since, the school and the area have declined and there's been a lot of violence in the area. Nick was one of six kids and he said that it was a whole family effort to help him practice baseball. His dad would pitch to him, siblings would shag fly balls. He was a shortstop growing up and as a senior hit 392 with 10 home runs. He was also a really good student. He had scholarship offers to many schools, including the U and Auburn. And the scouting report on Asaski compared his power to Willie Stargell and said that he could be as good as Mike Schmidt. He also had good range, a strong arm, and good defensive instincts. So clearly the comparison to Mike Schmidt, scouts are already looking to move Nick, all six foot three of him, to third base rather than play shortstop. The scout who was looking at him said, the kid has no idea how good he can be. And that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse that Nick signed as a first-round draft selection with the Cincinnati Reds, June 6, 1978, by scout George Zuraw. George Zuraw played part of four seasons in the minor leagues before becoming a scout in 1956. George was a scout all the way through to 2007. He spent 20 years in the middle there with the Reds, also spent some time with the Mariners. George passed away in April of 2020 at the age of 89. But George was kind of embedded with the local baseball world of Miami. Nick said that the Red scouting team had spent time with his family, made the family comfortable, kind of talked through what might happen. Nick said that that gave him the ability to just go out and play baseball and have fun. There were scouts watching all of his games, but he knew he was good. He knew that they were watching and he knew that they were going to be there every game, but he didn't really let it bother him. And because George spent a lot of time with his family, they were pretty comfortable. So when he got drafted, it was pretty easy to sign. And it only took a $40,000 signing bonus to get him to sign. This first round of the 1978 draft had a lot of our guys from the 88 top set. Bob Horner, Lloyd Mosby, Hubie Brooks, Mike Morgan, Andy Hawkins, Kirk Gibson, and Tom Bernanski. There was a, a picture in the local paper right around the time of the draft, and, and it had the quote, Nick Asaski isn't particular about who drafts him as long as he is drafted. So he was excited and ready to go play professional baseball. So Nick starts at Rookie League in Billings, Montana. He hit 305 with four homers in 64 games that first year. Took a lot of walks, had an on-base percentage of 422, which is great. Next year at A-Ball in Tampa, he hit 269, a little bit more power, and 10 homers. They moved Nick to third base, and he was still getting the hang of it. He made 27 errors, and that his first year ever playing that position. And around that time, his dad took a job in Atlanta, and the Asaski family back home moved to Marietta, which is where Nick would make his home, and that's what's listed on the card. In 1980, he's 20 years old and playing at AA Waterbury, and finally, his power shows up that had been foretold by the scouts, finally arrives and gives us this fun fact that Nick led the Eastern League with 30 home runs and 14 game-winning RBIs at Waterbury during the 1980 season. 
he hit 271 with those 30 home runs, making the league all-star team. And after that season, the Reds thought highly enough of Nick to add him to the 40-man roster to protect him from the Rule 5 draft. And it shows that he's in the Reds' plans moving forward. 1981, he moves up to AAA Indianapolis, spends two seasons there, two seasons that look relatively similar on his baseball reference page. He hit 265 and then 264. One big difference was that in 1981, he had 17 home runs compared to 27 in 1982. And he only played in 105 games in 1982. So that was a real power surge, resulting in a 913 OPS for Nick in 1982, where he also helped Indianapolis win the American Association Championship. And he ends up starting 1983 back at AAA, and he's just destroying AAA pitching. 14 home runs, a 991 OPS through June. Dan Dreesen goes on the DL, and Nick gets called up to Cincinnati. He got his first hit in his second game, went two for four with two singles and a walk against the Giants. He was a regular at third base, playing 85 games, and did not take a day off until late August. And on July 1st, we have a very important milestone, really for every Reds player. We want to see where they appear in Grandma's scorebook. I think Grandma's scorebook may have had Nick Asaski's first game. They got some artifacts here, but this is a big one. Nick Asaski's first home run, July 1st, 1983, and the description is, Nick Asaski hit an inside-the-park home run for his first career home run against the Braves at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. He hit a solo inside-the-park home run to center field off Phil Necro in the second inning. No fun notes on this scorecard, really, just that Grandma has marked it as inside-the-park home run. So thank you, Grandma's scorebook. Yeah, the ball hit the top of the fence and bounced around, allowing Asaski to touch them all. This was the only inside the Parker of his 122 career home runs. He did have five triples that rookie season, which I didn't expect that kind of speed from Asaski. Just a very good half a season for him. He hit 265 with 12 homers and 46 RBIs. The Reds were in last place that season, so... They were able to let him get some playing time without any risk. In 1984, he played over 100 games, many at third base, but some at first as they were still trying to figure out his best position. But 84 was a much worse season for him. He slumped badly, hitting only 193 with 10 homers, and really couldn't get in a rhythm to get out of the slump, was benched with back stiffness, and sometimes uh, for his poor performance, Late in the season, the Reds got a new manager, Pete Rose. They end up finishing 70-92, and 92, a pretty forgettable year for Nick and the team. Nick would have a difficult relationship with Pete Rose over the next few seasons. But in 1985, he bounces back. He has one of his better seasons in Cincinnati. And the Reds as a team have a better season. They win 89 games, finishing second in the NL West. There's not a lot of video highlights of Nick, despite his pretty good power numbers in his career, but we do have a video from 1985, May 4th against the Mets at Riverfront Stadium. Off-speed pitch fouled right back toward us, and a souvenir for Tony Kubek. Our statistician Steve Nightrain Horn rapidly getting out of the way. You know, Steve, if you'd merely told me, I would have reached over and made the play. I tried to give you the opportunity. Sasky has had two career grand slams. Fastball is lost to deep left center. This could be the jackpot. 
like they point out that Doug Sisk had a 6.75 ERA and I think had given up runs in multiple straight appearances and then gives up a blast of a grand slam to Nick Asaski. This is a 14 to two blowout for the Cincinnati Reds. Nick was in a platoon this season at third base. And even though he only played 125 games, he finished second on the team in home runs and RBIs to Dave Parker with 21 homers, 66 RBIs hitting 262 on the season. Late in the season, Pete Rose moved Nick to the outfield, and since Nick had never played there, he wasn't very happy with that and asked to be traded. Pete Rose didn't respond very well to that. He wasn't happy about Nick's public protesting of this move. But despite the gripes, that season Nick played 54 errorless games in left field, and in his career he played 98 games in the outfield altogether without an error. In 1986, It was another off year for Nick. The Reds finished in second place, but were 10 games behind the Astros. Nick played in 102 games, mostly at first base, and he developed a reputation as a streaky hitter. And really, all Nick wanted was a chance for a full season. He said, who knows when I'll be hot? If I'm not playing every day, I might be hot while I'm sitting in the dugout. (laughs) All I've asked is to be put in there for one full season. Let's see what I can do. And it didn't happen in 86, and it didn't happen in 1987 either. He fractured his wrist in spring training, misses the first 37 games of the season. He's limited to 100 games, but he still manages his best offensive numbers with the Reds. 272 average with 22 home runs and a 119 OPS+. Of course, 1987, a big year for power overall. So his 529 slugging percentage only led to an OPS+, that was marginally better than his 85 season, which kind of interesting just in comparison uh, to other players in the league. His power was also very streaky. He would go on short runs where he would hit home runs in multiple straight games. He had three straight in June, four straight in July, and then another cluster of four home runs in three straight games in August. So that's half of his home runs in 10 games. So it was really a feast or famine situation, long stretches between power bursts for Nick Asaski, and that Uh, I think frustrated Pete Rose as well. In 1988, he finally got to play more consistently, appearing in 122 games. Like everyone else in the league, his average in power dropped a bit from 87 to 88. He hit only 243 with 15 homers. And he kept up that streaky form with some hot streaks, particularly against Atlanta. On July 26th, 27th, and 28th, He hit homers in three of the four games that were played there. All three were game-winning homers. This caught the eye of the Red Sox, and the Red Sox were also looking for a lefty reliever and were interested in the Reds' Rob Murphy. So they put together a package. The deal sent Murphy and Nick Asaski to the Red Sox for Todd Benzinger, Jeff Sellers, and a player to be named later, who was minor leaguer Luis Vasquez. And this is probably a good time for Nick to leave, as rumors are, Pete Rose is over Nick. <laughs> he didn't think that Nick had met his potential. Reporters speculated that Asaski was too laid back for the notably not chill Pete Rose. <laughs> Rob Murphy said that while Pete Rose was Charlie Hustle, Nick was Mr. Even Keel. Nick also, as he said, struck out a lot, and Rose was a contact hitter, maybe didn't appreciate the value of Nick's power as a trade-off for some strikeouts. So after years of looking for consistent playing time and having some 
hundred game seasons, some three hundred at bat seasons. Nick is excited to be the starting first baseman for the Red Sox going into 1989, and that would be the peak of his career. So while Pete Rose is getting booted from the game for gambling, Nick was thriving in Boston. He's a big upgrade at first base. Todd Benzinger had hit 254 with a 293 on base percentage in 1988 with only 13 home runs. Nick comes in, he's hitting 300 at Fenway. He says, this is the first time I've enjoyed playing ball in a long time. He ends up playing 154 games, a career high, and also led the Red Sox with 30 home runs, 108 RBIs, hits 277 for a 133 OPS plus. All of those are career highs. And while the Red Sox had made the playoffs in 1988, their pitching let them down in 89. They fell off, finishing just a few games over 500 in third place in the AL East. Nick was named team MVP. He was the American League Player of the Month in August. He also played strong defense. This is good timing for Nick as well. This is the last year of his contract. So this big year was really huge for his future earning potential. And after the season, he hits the free agent market. At this point, he's married with three kids. He was living in Marietta in the offseason, as we saw on the card. And he had always played well against Atlanta and at Fulton County Stadium with a 348 average and a 1.207 OPS in the 45 games that he had played at Fulton County. So the Braves come in with a big offer. They offer him three years, $5.6 million, and he takes it. Goes into 1990. He's just turned 30. He's ready to repeat those big numbers. And here he is, Fulton County Stadium, where he's hit 14 home runs, the most of any park that wasn't his home park. And Matt, we should, we should clarify, Fulton County would be his home park but he never hit a home run there as an Atlanta player. He played only nine games in April for Atlanta, hitting 171, no extra base hits, no RBI. So all of those 14 home runs came while he played for the Reds. He also, in those nine games that he played in April, made five errors in nine games and injured his shoulder fielding a ground ball. He started suffering from weakness, dizziness, and he starts visiting doctors trying to determine what's wrong with him. Finally, they find that he's suffering from vertigo. I think vertigo is a little bit misunderstood as just some dizziness, but this is a condition that can be really debilitating for folks. It causes a problem with the body's vestibular system, which includes structures of the inner ear, vestibular nerve, brainstem, and cerebellum, the region of the brain that integrates sensory perception, coordination, and motor control. Important things for a professional athlete, and generally for just living your life. A number of things can cause vertigo. Vertigo isn't necessarily a, a disease. It's more of a symptom. Imbalances of fluids, viruses, tumors, migraines, strokes can all cause vertigo. In Nick's case, it was determined to be an inner ear virus that caused his vertigo. So he's able to medicate and manage many of his symptoms so that he can live his life but he's simply fighting to function and not necessarily able to get to the level that he was at when he was hitting 30 home runs for the Red Sox. Performing on the baseball field is different than just life functions. In an effort to get back on the field, he starts visiting multiple doctors, specialists, goes to the Mayo Clinic. He admitted he just always has some form of headache, unsteadiness. He said, the one thing that they've told me is that it's not life-threatening and that it'll go away, but no one knows when. 
just a horrendous stroke of bad luck and who knows where it came from and and why it happened but just really sent his career in a in a in a downturn immediately going into 1991 the Braves couldn't count on Nick as their first baseman so they signed Sid Bream which turned out Okay for everyone except for Pirates fans like myself. Nick tried to make it back for spring training, but he had blurred vision and things were going rough in the rest of his life as well. He got a divorce, tried to come back in 1992, was assigned to AAA, and did better there. So he did get some of his skills back. He hit 278 with five homers in 30 games. But Atlanta didn't see a future with Nick at that point. And on July 17th of 1992, they released him. Nick knew it wasn't going to get any better after the tests and doctors and specialists. And he decided to retire. He said it was difficult to make that decision, but I couldn't compete at that level. I was able to be released and I just walked away from the game. I didn't go back to the stadium. I didn't pick up my stuff from Atlanta. I just went home. So closing the book on Nick Asaski, eight seasons in the major leagues, 810 games, a 250 average with 122 home runs, 120 doubles, and an OPS plus of 111. Once again, the Mark Simon loved to face. Well, he was best against the Braves. He had 18 of his 122 homers against Atlanta. He hit 405 against Fernando Valenzuela. Only one home run, though, in 50 plate appearances. Hated to face Jose De Leon and Dave Dravecki. One for 17 off of De Leon and four for 29 off of Dave Dravecki. How about in retirement? The first few years for Nick were pretty rough. At the same time, he lost his career, his marriage fell apart, and he had unanswerable health questions. He was trying to prevent his divorce and, and reconcile his marriage, but it didn't work out. So he ends up having joint custody of his kids. And meanwhile, he has to work constantly to manage his vertigo. He stays in good shape. He worked in personal training, made some real estate investments. He started a production company, Asaski Productions, which was created with the help of his friend, Canadian musician Steph Kars. And Steph Kars became famous thanks to French translations of Achy Breaky Heart and Boot Scoot and Boogie. Together, they recently produced a video for country singer Corbin Champeau, who had a country network number one song with a cover of Hank Williams' I'm So Lonesome, I Could Cry. Nick currently has a website promoting private hitting instructions at nickasaski.com. This is kind of a rough story to see someone who had talent, was drafted right out of high school, who finally gets a shot and has his career develop, and then seems to have it taken all away from a disease. So now looking at him a little bit more, what do we think? This is a totally different kind of story than the career-ending injury that you see in highlights and then you know that guy's career is done. This was more like trailing off and false promise that maybe Nick could get better and maybe Nick could recover the ability to put his skills on the ball field together and overcome this vertigo. As I mentioned, vertigo is a symptom rather than a condition, and it's the feeling of movement. And that feeling of movement may be barely noticeable or so severe that it prevents you from completing everyday tasks. For Nick, it threw his whole world into disarray. In 1989, there's a picture of him meeting President George Bush. The next year, he's barely able to get on the field. He was able to manage the vertigo and live his life, but that life just didn't include baseball anymore. There was this perception that Nick wasn't passionate enough for Pete Rose's Reds. 
And I don't know that that's a fair bar that you have to be as passionate as Pete Rose. Nick was a really good player and a 20 home run guy playing only a two thirds of a season. He was also very passionate about baseball. And that's seen in the local news articles from the time of his draft. Nick has described picking up the phone in total disbelief. Once he figures out that it's not one of his high school friends playing a joke on him, he just says, oh man, oh man, I'm shaking. And he tells the reporter, all I ever wanted is to make it to the major leagues. And to go from that shock, he must have suspected that that he was going to get drafted with all of those scouts around. But his excitement was real as a high school kid ready to go pro. And maybe he just displayed it in a different way than Pete Rose. But then he had the different kind of shock of going from a 30 home run season to falling out of baseball in just a couple years. And it must have been difficult for Nick emotionally on top of the physical stress of figuring out his own condition and how to live life. On top of his own health issues, Nick has had to cope with some other familial issues. When one of his daughters was a teenager, she got involved with drugs and became addicted to methamphetamines. At 19, she had a daughter and Nick attempted to help his own daughter get clean, rehab, interventions didn't work. Realizing that he might not be able to keep his daughter safe, he focused on his granddaughter. He made the difficult decision to go to court to gain custody of his granddaughter, ultimately going through a long court proceeding against his own child. After years of court battles and his daughter taking the one-year-old baby on the run, Nick was successful. This sent his daughter further down a spiral of addiction, and Nick became a a parent now of a 16-month-old granddaughter, and he took that responsibility on as his new job. His daughter went to rehab. I'm not sure what that relationship is like now, but soon after the custody battle, Nick started the Kim Foundation, which stood for Kids in Meth, aimed at helping families pay for drug treatment and find resources for their children who are in trouble with meth. And that was the mid-2000s, so 2005 six. I'm not sure if that foundation still exists, but Nick has dedicated his life to raising his granddaughter, who is now a late teen in college. And Nick has an Instagram, and he doesn't post a lot. But on all of his posts, if you look at them, his granddaughter likes all of them. And she recently posted a picture of the two of them with the tagline, thankful for Nick. And so Nick Asaski has had a lot of challenges in his life, and he's taken on a lot of different tasks in retirement, but none more important than being a father to his granddaughter. And it's just a really strange situation where you have Nick Asaski, unlike a lot of athletes, the, the tragedy of Nick's early retirement and Nick's demeanor was more understated. And so we don't have this guy who was always in the news and then all of a sudden he's gone. We have this guy who has kind of a even keel personality and he slowly fades away. But Nick Asaski has gone on to some success and none more successful than his relationship with his granddaughter. And so thank you, Nick Asaski, for a very interesting story, unlike any that I think we've had. There's a bit of a happy ending to that story that makes me feel a lot better because what set it up had felt so tragic to have his career kind of snatched away from him uh, by an ailment. But great to see how he responded when it came time to step up and find a new mission in life. So good story. Thanks, Nick, out there for what you're doing. And David, thank you for the story today. And thank you at home 
If you have any country songs that you need translated into French, we're happy to help. You just send them to us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.